0: There, and Welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today we have the phenomenal opportunity to have with us Dr. Randy Richards. Many of you know he was back on the podcast in November uh, 2022, where we sat down and talked about his book, Misreading Scripture um, Through Western Eyes. Today we're going to sit down and uh, dive deep into misreading scripture with individualist eyes, patronage, patronage honor, and shame in the biblical world. Uh, Just a fascinating uh, conversation. Many of you know, um, Randy Richards is, he's a great conversationalist. He's passionate about God's word and he really helps many of us that are living and working overseas to reconsider some of the um, assumptions and conclusions that maybe we've made. I think that's what he really challenged me on as I read this book and and began to think. He talks about, you know, we assign negative um, connotations to this idea of a collectivistic or collective culture. When it comes to kinship, we see that as nepotism, which nepotism in general is not something we consider to be positive. Patronage, once again, not necessarily something that we see to be positive. Brokerage, the idea that there's a middleman. We want to, as Americans, Westerners, we want to go directly to the point. Um, We don't necessarily want a mediator or someone to be there. But what he, he really helps me to see in the biblical stories where these are throughout. We talk about the story of Joseph and his brothers and the idea of the father not coming and mediating and then we talk about the the story of the prodigal son where the father does um does mediate he does play that role um that is a biblical role and he gives great uh, real life uh, life experience examples and he like i said he's a great communicator fun to have on the podcast and just enjoy spending time with him do want to ask you to continue to send in your questions for the podcast for back channel with Foth? that's where we sit down with dick Foth and go over listeners questions it's dick is another gem to have and uh, as many of you know he he appears on the podcast about every other week where we sit down and i get to spend some time with him and learn from him and just a joy to have dick on the podcast you can send those questions to my email and then we curate those and we i get those to dick and we get to to sit down and have have a have a good time um, chatting together so well there's no time better than now to get started so here we go greetings and welcome back to the clarity podcast so excited to be here with our our friend of the podcast dr randy richards randy welcome back to the podcast thank
1: you for inviting me back
0: it was uh, a phenomenal time last time i told my wife when i we got done recording i said it was He's a conversationalist, he's engaging, and I said it was wonderful. So, just so glad you um, agreed to come back with us today. For those who didn't maybe listen to the first episode that we did together, would you share a little bit about yourself before we jump into your book, Um, this
1: time, misreading scripture through individualist eyes? Sure. Um, Aaron, let let me introduce myself from the point of view that would interest your uh, listeners. Uh, I finished my uh, doctorate on Paul. And uh, and then my wife and I, along with a two-year-old and an eight-week-old, moved to Indonesia. There, we were actually uh, positioned in a uh, rather remote part of Indonesia. You know, most uh, lay people imagine missionaries live in the bush um, yeah. when actually we live in urban jungles. But uh, Stacey and I were actually one of the small minority <laughs> that actually did live in the, uh, in the bush I got there and I quickly realized my primary assignment was don't screw anything up. Um, (laughs) The nationals were just doing a great job and, uh, and teaching me so much. And so uh, that first book, the book on Western eyes uh, probably could have had a subtitle, everything I was taught by my collectivist friends. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, after about 10 years, just in thinking about the book I still agree with what I said in the first book, which is kind of fun, but uh, I realized there were some things I needed to say a lot more about. And so that's what this second book is about.
0: Yeah. Just going to ask you a quick personal question. You talked about moving to the field with a two-year-old and an eight-week-old. Is that what you said, or something? Yes. 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 So, what are there, many of our listeners in uh, that listen to this podcast are parents that ha, are in very similar stage of life. Any words of wisdom for uh, workers, global workers, missionaries that are going out with young kids at that stage of life?
1: Well, first, I would say it's interesting you find babies all over the world, and uh, and they knew what to do with them, uh, raising. <laughs> Uh, children overseas had a lot of advantages. Um, you know, one of the challenges here in the U.S. is that parents don't have much help. And over there, if there's a problem, is that you have too much help. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> everybody is helping. But it was wonderful, and so uh, we learned a, a great deal. We were in a very unusual area, very poor medical care. So um, actually, our older son when he was about three got tuberculosis, which really shouldn't have surprised us since it was the tuberculosis capital of the world. Mm -hmm. But, you know, God was faithful and he took care of us and our son is fine. And uh, both our sons uh, look back on their uh, childhood uh, on the mission field with great fondness. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in uh, resumes and job applications when they go various places, they usually find a way to mention that they were raised abroad.
0: Yeah. Wow. Insightful. Thank you so much. That was a personal question, not in the ones I sent you ahead of time. But um, I, <laughs> I, when you mentioned it, I thought, well, I'm going to ask. So I appreciate sure. you. You humored me on that one. So this one, the first question I wanted to ask you today is the concepts of individualism and collectivism and how do they impact how we relate, how we interact and how we live? That's a broad question, sure. but this one um, started.
1: Yeah, Aaron. In the first book, I mentioned nine uh, ways in which my Western culture acts as a lens uh, between me and scripture, and me and my uh, you know everyday environment. And I was focusing on ways in which uh, I misread. Now it's it. it I didn't cover in the book all the ways in which my culture helped me to read better. Uh, And there are ways in which my Western culture helped me to read better passages on forgiveness and generosity. I think we read really well. But I was looking at ways where um, it it may help me misread. And one of the nine that I picked, one of the deeper down nine was individualism. Well, in the 10 years that I was pondering it afterwards, I decided it just wasn't one of the nine. It is actually the key Hmm. element. And so in my additional research and and thinking on the subject, I decided that the real difference between Westerners and Easterners, to use those generalizations, is really individualism and collectivism. And let me say about generalizations, one of my favorite sayings is, generalizations are always wrong and usually helpful. (laughs) And... um, and so, you know, people can always critique a journalization. And sure, there are exceptions, but often the exception demonstrates the rule. And so, journalizations can be helpful. So, in broad ways, what makes us Westerners is primarily that we're individualists. And what makes my Indonesian friends Easterners is that they were collectivists. Africans are collectivists. Your listeners didn't need you to... I didn't mean, need me to tell you that. So uh, often in the U.S., they'll say, well, how do I know if I'm an individualist or a collectivist? And how usually, because they're usually college students. I'll say, would you allow your parents to pick your spouse? And of course, they just look horrified by that. <laughs> and I said, well, there's your answer uh, right there. My Indonesian friends would have said, oh, gosh, that's way too important for me to have to do it by myself. And wow. parents will look at me. In Indonesia, they'll say, well, don't you love your children, but you want to help them? You know, so it's really interesting, how, interesting. Um, how that goes. Now, uh, there was a sociologist who actually looked at, I think it was about 100 cultures, and put them on a sliding scale, Aaron, from most collectivists to most individualists, because it really is a sliding scale. And, uh, and he quickly discovered you had a scale from collectivists to individualists. And everything in between and then you had two cultures that were twice as far out to individualism as mm. everything else he said if I if I count those two on my scale then everybody else looks collectivist wow. so he he left those two off because then you have a nice spectrum but those two cultures that are twice as individualist as everybody else were the UK and the US Wow. Wow. So that, we aren't just individualists, Aaron. We are way over the top individualists.
0: We're the outliers that mess up statistics is what I heard you say. Exactly. So, <laughs> yes. We're the outliers that mess up statistics. So so being that this this idea of being individualistic and um, collectivism, um, how do these two ways of of seeing life impact how we see ourselves and how we
1: make decisions? Well, um Aaron, it's a great question because how we see ourselves determines how we make decisions. Um, a collectivist, you know I am a we. Um, hmm. you know I, de- I identify myself by what I'm a part of, and uh, it helps determine kind of who I am. Now that is true of individualists as well, but we don't think in those terms. We think in terms of I determine my own destiny. So if I sell my house, or what I do to my house does not have, is not my neighbor's business, except that what I do to my house influences my neighbor's True. property. That's why they have HOAs. And as individualists, that's why we hate HOAs. And, so, um, and yet we don't own HOAs. Because as individualists, we like to think I'm captain of my own soul, master of my own destiny, and that sort of thing. So as an individualist, I will make that decision. I myself will make that Decision as if it really doesn't influence anything else. And our culture stresses that, you know, little kids TV shows and movies, Disney, all those. The heroes, the hero because they follow their heart. And yet scripture tells us the heart of man is exceedingly deceitful. I mean, the one thing you shouldn't trust are your feelings. I mean, Mm. people get into affairs because they were following their feelings. And yet as individualists, we are always... Uh, you know, saying, "Well, you should, you know, trust your feelings, trust your heart, good lands." And so, a a collectivist is more part of a group. And uh, I am a we. <laughs> wow! Wow! Very, very
0: insightful. Very insightful. You also talk in the book about patronage, and um, you use an illustration of the baker in Philippi. Um, would you Would you just um,
1: unpack that for us, and then I have another question on sure. this too. So let me back up for the ones who haven't uh, really looked at the book. Every culture has certain values. They're just cultural values. In, the, in America, a couple of the cultural values are efficiency. So you can say, hey, if we do this, it'll be more efficient. Well, then everybody, we're done. Like, that's already <laughs> decided. And I quickly learned in Indonesia, efficiency was a neutral value. It's like saying we could paint it green. They right. think, well, green is nice, you know. And so I, I would think I had settled it by saying it's efficient. And they're thinking you're bringing up all these little minor points. And so we value efficiency. We value youth. You'll like this illustration, Aaron. In a TV show in America, the chief of surgery is 36 years old and clearly spends all this time in the gym, <laughs> you know. And the odd <laughs> thing about America is we don't even think – in our mind, wait a minute—the chief of surgery is not thirty-eight years old. You know, yeah. he's never seen the inside of a gym. You know, so um, I think it is fascinating. But those are just cultural values. So we have certain values in our our American culture, and then every culture has ways to enforce, reinforce those values. You teach them, enforce them, reinforce them. So in the old days, when I was growing up. The way you taught American values was actually through children's stories, like Mm -hmm. Aesop's Fables, The Tortoise and the Hare, um, The Early Bird Gets the Worm, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, those sorts of things. Well, we quit using those stories, and we started using Dr. Seuss because they're much more fun stories. And then lo and behold, we started complaining, wow, kids today don't share our values. Well, we didn't teach those values to them like we had had been taught. Now I'm not advocating necessarily those values, but every culture has those. So in collectivist cultures, the three main values are patronage, kinship, and what I call brokerage or mediation. There are elephants in the room all the time. Mm. Every story, at least one of those is in play. In the biblical account, In every biblical story, at least one of those are in play. And as I mentioned in the book, the most important things go without being said. And so just like America doesn't talk about youth, we just honor it. Um, In collectivist stories, they don't usually talk about kinship, patronage, or brokerage unless there's something weird about it. Otherwise, they go without being said. Mm -hmm. So those three values are key values. The one you mentioned first is uh, uh, patronage. Before we do that, let me back up and just give an example. The uh, kinship is the elephant in the room in the story of Jacob or, or Joseph and Jacob. You know, Joseph, the coat of many colors, yeah. that sort of thing. Kinship is the key element, but it goes without being said, except for the places where it's broken. Hmm. Because it goes without being said, we misread that story. So patronage is also a fundamental part of their culture. Now, as individualists, kinship, patronage, brokerage, we, uh, we're we not neutral on those. We actually tend to view all three of those negatively. True. Kinship, we call nepotism. Patronage is already its ugly own ugly term. And uh, brokerage, we call it the middleman and we want to get rid of them. So mm-hmm. collectivists honor all of those and we don't like them. <laughs> um, I spoke at a conference in Beirut on patronage and all of the westerners there except me all of the westerners spoke of patronage in negative terms it was really mm. interesting it was just presupposed negative mm. um so patronage is a huge part of biblical stories so people are saying well what exactly is it well um if any of your listeners saw the old movie the godfather with marlon brando sure you know Um, he, that is the modern descendant of ancient Roman patronage. Now you Mm -hmm. add crime and corruption and all that, but just this whole idea of someone who looks after. So let me give my illustration of the, uh, of the baker. So Aaron, you are a wealthy gold merchant in Philippi because they actually did discover gold in the hills around Philippi. So you've made your fortune. Um, And you are now a wealthy benefactor. I'm a baker. My bakery burned down. And it burned down because I didn't put put away the fire well that night before. But all my baker friends would say I must have hacked off the goddess of baking. And so she burned my bakery down. <laughs> now, I need to rebuild. You could go to a bank and get a loan except all of my collaterals now in ashes. And so I don't know what to do. And one of the other... Uh, One of my friends says, I have a friend, and I put that in air quotes, because in the biblical world, a friend means lots of things except never a buddy. Hmm. Um, And so um, a friend, uh, well, we'll see how this works. He says, I'm a friend. By that friend, he means you, and you actually are his benefactor, Hmm. and so he's part of your household. Hmm. And every morning he gets in line with all of the other friends, in air quotes, friends, clients of you. And when he gets to his spot in line, he says, "Do do you need anything, sir, Lord? Sir, do you need anything of me today? And you say, no, I don't need anything. Do you need anything? And he has some little minor need and you take care of it. But then he says, but I have this friend, me, who's had a catastrophe. So I tell you about my catastrophe." you are not obligated to help me in any way. Hmm. Um, But it's considered a virtue um, Hmm. for a wealthy person to be a patron. And for whatever reason, you decide you are going to help me. So you give me the materials I need and the money I need to rebuild my bakery. They used a special word for that gift. It was called a chorus. We'll come back to that. But if I accept that gift, I'm now part of your household. So I belong to you now, okay, and I'm supposed to repay, um, I'm supposed to be grateful to you, and I repay that by being loyal to you. So from that point on, I'm in line with all your other friends. I only bake bread for the people in your household, Um, and you make sure I don't charge too much or I don't get paid too little, and now we're all part of this. I'm of the household of Aaron, the gold merchant. My loyalty was called pistis. Now, why did I throw those two terms out? The only time they put those two words together is in patronage. When you give a gift and I respond with loyalty. Those words we translate in the New Testament, grace and faith. Wow! So Paul says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. God Mm -hmm. has given us a gift and we're to respond with loyalty. I'm now part of his household. As soon as the Ephesians heard that, they would have said, oh, so God is like our patron now. Exactly. So he used something they all understood to explain the relationship with God, just like he uses adoption. So he uses it and it fits together. So just like I'm supposed to be in line in the morning at your house to see if you need anything, I should be in line at my father's house Um. Every morning to ask if he needs anything of me hmm. and to receive his gifts to me. Wow. Wow. So that's patronage. It's huge. Oh, man. And uh,
0: as you said, uh, as Westerners, we we tend to not like uh, patronage. Um, <laughs> uh, and you, you shared actually we were going in our emails. You said we actually don't like all three of them um so how how have you grown in that understanding and respect for it because you said you were at that conference in beirut um i think
1: is yeah just how have you grown in that understanding and embracing of it everybody can point to particularly if you're in africa you can point to an example where patronage has been abused the patron has not acted in an honorable way okay well that we live in a fallen world so that's the way it works but patronage in the biblical world was like the air you breathe. You're not going to get rid of it. And I would say the same thing in Africa. You're not going to get rid of it. Hmm. Um, it's just the way it works. I remember in Beirut, they said patronage uh, caused our civil war. I said, really? They said, yeah. And patronage ended our civil war.
0: Wow. And
1: patronage is what's going to make us live together as a country. So for them, it was just, it's the dance that you you dance. Um, and so... Uh, one of the mistakes I would say that Western uh, missionaries make is we let our Western bias against patronage, kinship, and middleman negatively influence us. And we try to get rid of those things. And yet those are just cultural values. They're they're hmm. in the Bible. They're um, neutral, if not positive, And we just need to recognize this is part of uh, living and working in a collectivist society. Uh, it's the same in Indonesia.
0: So what I hear you say is they're not sinful, because I think I think as no. a Westerner, West Virginian, so I won't speak for other people. I'll speak for Aaron Stadtmeyer. So some, you know, when I got to Africa, um, I would have said those things: patronage, nepotism, uh, middleman. Those things are, you know, those are negative. But what I hear you saying is actually they're neutral or positive, and there's biblical examples for those throughout Scripture. Is that am I? Hearing oh, absolutely.
1: They they never use the term patron. Um, I mean, it's pre- it's very rare. Usually they use a euphemism to refer hmm. to it. The most common two were father and shepherd. Wow. Um, wow. So when it says the Lord is our shepherd, they were not talking about horticulture um, hmm. or agriculture. They were talking about patronage Wow. and people understood it. Wow.
0: So for them, it wasn't like you said, it wasn't mind bending. It was that's that's the way they understood it. Yeah. Wow. Very, very insightful. Very, very insightful. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the story of Joseph. Um, And as I was reading the book, going through it, you talk about the idea that um, it's not just, you know, as a a West Virginian, I read that as about a boy who pulls himself up by his bootstraps. But you share that it's not, that's not the main purpose of that story, but it's more about a family and how God
1: reconciled them. Could you unpack that and share more about that? Sure, Aaron. A lot of that story goes without being said. The main thing is kinship, um, which, you know, we pick up in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Those stories are hooked together because they're kinship stories. And God is working through kinship. And the interesting thing is he's promised to Abraham a land and a people. So that's inheritance. So all of those stories are dealing with inheritance. We don't think that so... Um, When I'm talking to my college students, I say, well, you know, Joseph was the oldest son. And most of them just write it down. But a few of them have been to Sunday school, you know, in vacation Bible school. they They say, wait a minute. No, he wasn't. I say, yes, he was. They say, no, he wasn't. I say, yes, he was. He was the oldest son of the second wife. Well, in our culture, you know, blended families, everybody's equal, that sort of thing. Well, in the ancient world, inheritance ran through one of those two wives. Hmm. Um, and so the code of many colors was not that Joseph got a nicer birthday gift for Christmas gift. It is that Joseph or Jacob is indicating the inheritance is going to run through uh, the second wife. And then it's very clear in the story. They don't make a big deal about it. But Joseph is in the home office. The brothers are out in the field working. Joseph is the one who comes out with orders, directions for the brothers, even though he's not the eldest brother. Now. When you're non-inheriting, which happened all the time, when you're not inheriting, um, your, your place, your share is all depending upon the graciousness of the inheritor. So you would expect your brother to take care of you. It is the biblical story. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, the biblical answer is yes, you are your brother's <laughs> keeper. Um, so the first story is designed to tell us what's wrong. So they don't talk about any of the stuff that was that went without being said. But the first story is that Joseph rats on his brothers. Hmm. Well, we read that as, well, boys will be boys, you know, brothers. But it's designed to show there is not a good relationship between Joseph and his brothers. Then Joseph says, you know, I had a dream. And in that dream, all of you are going to bow down to me. Well, that makes it pretty clear to the brothers how the inheritance is going to go <laughs> it would be very acceptable for the brothers to be enslaved by the inheriting brother so it's pretty clear the way this is going to shake down um, now all of these brothers we imagine they're all 12 but they all have families okay? it's true. so um, these brothers the way I ask my students is what would you do to defend your children well mm. That's what they're doing. They're defending their family because they're not going to inherit. Now, uh, because all that goes without being said, there's pieces that seem to us missing in the story. So we fill it in with our culture. As you pointed out, I did the same thing. I superimposed the American success story on this. So that success story is a boy grows up on the farm, you know, out somewhere, (laughs) and he has to leave the farm maybe not for good reasons, and he journeys to the big city, overcomes adversity, and makes it big. So in my superimposition of the story, the climax of the story is when Joseph becomes second-in-command. I don't really notice that that's only halfway through the story. Everything else seems like a very long and boring epilogue Wow! because the climax has already been hit. Joseph is second-in-command. But the story is actually: Will Joseph take care of his family? And the story ends with Joseph taking care of his brothers, like he should have done at the mm. at the beginning.
0: Wow, wow! It's that is super insightful. And um, so, the, the, like you said, it's the whole story about reconciliation, not necessarily the 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 boy that goes and makes it big. Is that does that hear yeah. you correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. It's it's about actually um, the story of. Uh, Jacob, one of my Middle Eastern friends, when he hears the story the first time, he says, where's Jacob? And I thought, well, Jacob, that's the last chapter. We're done with Jacob. Yeah. Um, and his point was, so of course, brothers have conflict, but it's a father's job to make sure that brothers do the right thing, wow. that sons do the right thing. And of course, Joseph, is, I mean, Jacob is just oddly absent throughout the story.
0: Hmm. Wow. Challenging challenging so kind of to kind of segue into that you talk about um the idea you say in the book that we can you know or i grew up saying you can pick your friends but you can't pick your family or you can't pick your relatives um from a western mindset what does that look like from an individualistic versus a collective mindset and the, the interpretation from from
1: that yeah so it's interesting indonesians have the same saying um you can pick your friends but you can't pick your relationships your family um, but they mean it the opposite of what we do that you belong to a family and you can't mess it up by picking the wrong ones because they're, mm-hmm. it's picked for you, so you're safe. Mm-hmm. We take it to mean my individual selection of friends is more important than the family that I inherited. Um, so it's interesting that we both draw the same conclusion, the same saying, but we. We mean completely different things sure. from it. Yeah. Um, scripture sides with my Indonesian friends, not with me. Um, friends say, you know, a brother is born for adversity. You know, Friends will take off when adversity hits. That's the meaning of the prodigal son. His so-called friends desert him when adversity comes, but it's family that will stand uh, by him.
0: Well, it, it just it hit me because I've said that, or my father, to be honest with you, he's the one that he says it frequently. And uh, you, it has a, as you said, it's more like that. I can choose better, um, but it really challenged me to realize that you know I didn't I didn't choose what family I was born into. I didn't choose my parents, and God placed me there. And um, who am I to think that I could I could choose better uh, when it comes to friends than the the family that God has given me? So it was really challenging for me just to think about it.
1: I was reading a news story uh, this morning, and it was about a young man who was raised well by his family, but in high school, he started picking friends poorly, got in with the wrong crowd, and made a lot of very, very bad decisions. Ultimately, his family rescued him, and now he's 40 years old, and things are good. But it was interesting to me that that story kind of runs counter to our American values. Wow
0: can you can you unpack that how it, how it run
1: counter to our american values well we we would say well he picked his friends he should make his own decisions his family intervened in his life basically and pushed him into going to a treatment yeah. center and they stood by him during all of that mess that he'd made of his life and uh, uh they i mean they stayed with him uh because That's our son. That's our brother. Um, And that's so.
0: um, that's that sense of loyalty you mentioned earlier. You know, that, the brother is that, made for adversities. Yeah, in that sense, sense of loyalty. You also talked. You mentioned just a, f- a few minutes ago about the story of the prodigal son, um, and you share that it, in the book that it has kinship, patronage, and brokerage throughout that story. Can you highlight for uh, many of those that listen to this podcast? We've listened to that sure. story, read it many times, but can you highlight where
1: where those are found? Sure, the um both sons in the biblical world, both sons would inherit. A the older son would get a double portion, which sounds dreadfully uh unfair. Of course, the older son doesn't pick uh pick what order he's born in. But the idea of that was to make sure property didn't subdivide into so many pieces that after five or six generations everybody owns a square foot. Um but it was always thought that. Um, land would stay with the family and everybody would stay on the land and everybody would benefit, including the servants and, you know, everybody benefits. So in that uh, story, the uh, young man wants to uh, wants his share early, which does insult the uh, father. The uh, father gives it to him. He sells it. I don't know that uh, that was necessarily anticipated by people. But he sells it. So now everyone else has a third less property than they had before. The servants, the older son, the father, they're all living on two-thirds of Mm -hmm. the income that they had originally. The younger son goes to a far place and uh, squanders it. The word prodigal technically means wasteful. And so um, we've... Because of the story, we've come to think prodigal means to wander off. But technically, yeah. the English word prodigal means wasteful. So he wastes the money. He doesn't spend it well. And then famine hits um, because nobody uh, budgets that. You know, nobody anticipated 2008. Nobody anticipated 2020. Those things aren't in anyone's 401 one planning. But adversity happens. <clears throat> and at that point, his friends all desert him. Um, and he's left in a genuine hardship. And at that point, he, he remembers that I have family, even if I've, I may have lost my status in the family, I have mm-hmm. family. And so, um, uh, he returns. It's a great, um, it's a great story. The, uh, in the ancient world and in probably all over Africa, um, everybody wants a, a broker, a mediator. Hmm. Um, it's interesting as Americans we don't even though scripture says we have a mediator Jesus Christ we think well I don't particularly want one Um, so uh, but in the biblical world and in Africa I suspect people want a mediator someone to help solve it and mediators are pictured as going back and forth so they build a bridge between the groups that are where the relationship is damaged they build a bridge solve the problem, and then they keep maintaining the bridge. So they're always going back and forth. That's why in John, it talks about Jesus coming and going all the time. You think, man, he's kind of busy. He comes and goes. <laughs> but, but that's mediation language. Yeah. And uh, in the ancient world, we, we don't translate paraclete very well. It actually meant a mediator. And so uh, Jesus says, I'm leaving, and they're panicked because, oh, no, there goes our mediator with God. And she says, No, I'm sending you an even better mediator, um, the Holy Spirit. That's good. And he goes back and forth mediating for us. It's interesting. I
0: I guess I should have thought of this before, but you highlighted in Joseph, and you said your Middle Eastern friend said, Where's the father? But then right. we and in that story, it was the brothers that kind of worked it out. But then in this, the story of the prodigal son, the father does um, he is involved in the reconciling that relationship. Am I reading too much into that, or is that was that a highlight of what? No, it's really fun.
1: Um, the father does play a mediating role between the brothers. Now, uh, Jacob is absent in that story. He does not mediate between the brothers. Now, uh, we'd argue maybe the brothers do, but actually the biblical text would be that God does. Wow. God mediates between Joseph and his brothers. Yeah. Um And uh, it's, it's kind of fun. It's a great story. Yeah, it is for sure. For sure.
0: I got two more questions for you. Um, Is is Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ, can you share a story about the furniture being gone? And um, you talk about that. I just thought it was funny. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah.
0: And how that demonstrates the collectivistic mindset and
1: uh, how you responded to it. Sure. the, Scripture refers to Christians as brothers and sisters. They mean a lot more by that than you learned growing up in West Virginia, where everybody's brother Bob, or sister Alice. I grew up in that same mindset, but they mean a lot more by it than that. So let me give a different example to start with, and then I'll come back to the furniture story. I had gone to visit my parents uh, out in, in West Texas. And my sister had come out as well to to be there. I'm an early riser. So I get up early in the morning and there is no coffee in the house to be had, which is a crisis. (laughs) Um, And so I remembered there was a uh, gas station down the road. My folks live out in the country, but there was a gas station down the road that I was sure would have coffee. So I look around. There's my sister's keys. So I borrow the car, run down and get coffee. Come back. I knew there would not be a problem because it's my sister. She yeah. would have been more angry if I had awakened her to ask if I could borrow the keys. So it's it was perfectly fine. We could do that because we're brothers and sisters. We're a family. Okay. So I get up um, one morning and I, I go, uh, I'm, we live on campus in Indonesia, um, like I said, out in the bush some. And uh, I come back from teaching class about midday, and there is uh, no furniture in our living room. So, Stacia's <laughs> in the kitchen. So, I wander into the kitchen, and I say, hey, kid, uh, our living room furniture is gone. She said, yeah, I noticed that when I got up this morning. Because, um, you know, living out in the bush, we, you know, the doors don't lock. Anyway, so, um, I said, where is our furniture? She said, I have no idea. So, anyway, <laughs> um, I go back up. Um, teach class again, come down at lunch. The furniture is still gone. She's made lunch. We we sit, I can't remember if we sat outside or what we did to, to eat lunch, but the furniture was still gone. So I go run an errand and I'm back at the house and midday, this truck comes down the hill to our place, has our furniture loaded on it. And they start unloading the furniture and putting it back in the, in the living room. And then they, um, tell me good afternoon or whatever. And they start to leave. And, uh, and, you know, I should have just left it alone, but you know, I'm an American. I couldn't. So I said, wait, 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 um, where, where has my furniture been? And they said, Oh, it was up the mountain at this, uh, village. W- why was my furniture up the mountain at this? village? And they said, oh, there, there was a wedding, they said, uh, and, uh, and we needed some nice furniture and so we came to borrow it, but um, no one was awake at your house. And we didn't want to wake anyone up. And we mm-hmm. knew you wouldn't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we were Christians and we were mm-hmm. brothers and sisters. So of course we wouldn't mind was their thinking. Wow. Um, I, uh, I'm i glad I wasn't there because I might have no, my furniture can't go up the mountain. Um, so my uh, reputation as a, a Christian stayed intact. Um, they, they did not take my furniture inappropriately. They just assumed like I did when I borrowed my sister's car, mm. that of course she wouldn't mind if I borrowed mm. her car for a moment. Um, I invited an Indonesian, when I came back to the U.S., I invited an Indonesian teacher to come for a semester and teach. And while he was here, I loaned him my truck. I said, hey, I know you need to run some errands, so here's my truck. He kept it the whole semester. Um, and when, uh, when, when it was over, he brought the keys back, and we all said goodbye, and he left. I thought about it. You know, He didn't say, thank you for loaning me your truck. Well, he's a wonderful Christian gentleman. But in his mind, I had two vehicles, and he had no vehicles, so of course I wouldn't. Yeah. What kind of a sorry Christian would I be if I hadn't? Um, they were treating me like Christian family. hm And uh, shame on me if I didn't want to do that. Yeah. So an offering at church is the same thing as a family fund when family put money together to take care of the needs of the family. Hmm.
0: And I think it just really jumped out to me just how my individualistic when it comes to things and possessions, you know, they're possessive, right? That that they're mine, right. you know. What I mean, rather than they're ours and they're there to be shared. And um, yeah,
1: technically they belong to our father, don't they?
0: Yeah, they, <laughs> they do, but and at the same time, I've just seen friction over my twenty years um, serving overseas. That have come, it's come down to objects and possessions, right? Uh, Mine, this is mine, and just friction that would take place. I'm
1: sorry, I didn't handle that better. Our mission agency had a policy; we could not loan a mission vehicle to to nationals. One of my friends um, chafed at that, so he gathered up some personal money and bought a used car that he could then loan out to people. And I wish I had done that Hmm. Um, or I wish I had found a oddly enough, I could in my mission agency, we could have a driver Hmm. um, and then the driver could drive the car. I wish I had done that. I wish I had been better about that than I had been. Yeah.
0: One last question. Um, You talk about the idea of in the book about being a neighbor, a neighbor and how can those living overseas and those with neighbors in the U.S., come when we come from these different perspectives of seeing the world, how can we be better prepared to to really the people we call neighbor really truly be a neighbor and um be respectful and um look as you've you've highlighted today there's a lot of positives in both sides, but rather yeah and not being critical of one or the other?
1: I think some of it we need to recognize that my culture has values um and um and for the most part, those are neutral um, and I don't need to try to Christianize them. Uh, I was speaking uh, this past weekend at a conference and uh, the lady was she was probably about my age, uh, about 60 or so. And she said, they they invited me to join the Golden Age. class, And she was offended. And I thought, okay, OK, but in in Asia, that would have been a compliment. You know, so we just need to recognize our valuing youth or not valuing age is a cultural value. Some cultures value hospitality and we need to recognize that's a it's a biblical virtue, but they're just really good at it. And um, one of my students mentioned across the street, a new family had moved in from uh, India. I said, have you gone over to visit yet? She said, no, it would just seem kind of weird, like just to knock on the door. I said, well, next Saturday go knock on their door. I said, but just be prepared. You'll be there all day. And, um, So I saw her that following Monday, I said, hey, did you go over there? She said, yes. Oh, my gosh. I went over there. They welcomed me in. The next thing I knew, I'm back in the backyard with the women. They're teaching me the songs you sing when you do your laundry. And then they showed me how to cook stuff. And I said, were you there all day? She said, yes, I was there all day. I had the best time ever. I'm going back next Saturday. And um, it was just wonderful the way they celebrate hospitality we we need to be a little better at it mm. and we just also need to recognize that they're just really good um at that and let the family of god teach us how to be better at we might can teach them something about forgiveness or generosity and they can teach me something about um say hospitality yeah good word
0: good word well, Randy, it was an honor and pleasure to spend some time with you again with you today. Will you pray for us so that God will use what you shared with us today, um, not as just not just to have new head knowledge and new thoughts, but as we live and serve um, and share the message of Jesus Christ, that we'll put these things into action, um,
1: and they, they we'll be truly who we are. Sure, let's pray. Father, I pray that those who are listening. Um, might seek to have biblical values rather than American values. That biblical values about um, generosity and forgiveness, which we do well, will continue to do well. But biblical values about hospitality, about being the family of God, we might do better at that. We might be able to put aside some of our American values uh, prejudices, and learn to listen and see and let the family of God teach us how to be better members. Um, We're usually very open to teaching them um, certain things, but may we also be open to them teaching us as we learn to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm thankful for Aaron, who seeks to find ways to share what's going on in the worldwide family of God with his brothers and sisters who are serving there. May you be kind and gracious to all of them. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.